Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. He's gone past middle age. I think at this stage he's... he's getting into his old age and I'm sure he, he doesn't fancy the, leaving the fine cuisine of uh, Portlaoise prison he never went beyond you know being a hitman even if you're at the top of your game as a hitman you're still potentially a disposable asset you know no more than a Ferrari or a gun or a bomb or something like that you're, you're a tool to be used I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He looks a far cry from the international legend first arrested in Ireland in April 2017 on a trip to murder Kinnahan cartel target James Mago Gately. Gone are the chiselled looks of the suave international hitman for hire and when Imre Arrakis appeared in the Irish High Court this week before Justice Paul Burns, he looked more like a desert island castaway resigned to his fate. A one-way trip to Lithuania where he faces murder charges. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Eamon Dillon as we discuss the extradition of Imre Arrakis, the doomed trip to Dublin on a mission to kill that ended his lengthy career, and the mobs from both home and abroad brought down by their own bad decisions. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I just popped into the extradition um, of Imre Arrakis the other day because I was down in court and it was really just voyeurism on my part to have a look at him because each time he's quite jaw-dropping um, the first time I saw him, he had just been arrested in Ireland and was charged in connection with the conspiracy to kill James Mago Gately. That was in 2018. He was tall, have to say very handsome, distinguished looking man, shaking your head aiming at me. But he was and, uh, you know, his hair cut short and he was these piercing blue eyes and very Hollywood looking. And the next time I saw him, he had grown his hair long. He was just not quite as... Um, celebrity looking and he's gone downhill ever since and yesterday for his extradition hearing uh, when he is obviously extradited to Lithuania we're going to talk about that in a moment the kind of the real issues but 
His beard, he's a beard down, really long beard, really long white hair down his back. He looks like something out of Castaway. He has sunken cheeks. Um, the piercing blue eyes are still there, but he even looks as if he's got smaller. Now, do you remember he did the interview with the uh, Estonian newspaper and said prison in Ireland was easy peasy. Food was great. He was having a fantastic time. But I think he's probably suffering with his health. He had a bit of a, a stroke and he's he's not in good health. But yeah, it's just amazing to see these people because to me, Arrakis, the creepiness of him is not just the fact that he is an international hitman, that that was been his job and his career, but that he likes to get up close and personal to his targets. He's almost like animalistic like that, stalking them. He wants to literally be able to smell their breath before he kills them. Yeah, I mean, some of that detail that you're talking about came out in the, the, the when he was done for the conspiracy to kill Mago Gately. Um, I know you've gone through it before, the messages that were vital in, in nailing him, but it really showed you how, you know, well, like how, how kind of, um, I suppose, callous, like, and, you know, how cold and I suppose necessarily uh, clinical he intended to be. Now, whether some of this was just showing off for the boss or whether he was actually like that, um, I think we kind of, we've tended to err on the side that he actually was like that because he does seem to have a reputation, not just um, from sources in Ireland, but from, you know, wider abroad and has since been linked to some other very high profile murders of gangland bosses. Um, I think um, the Goldfinger Palmer being one of them in in the UK, but uh, I mean he he was talking like he he was talking about you know oh there's a little trick you can do it depends on whether the the, the door frame is metallic or not and that he'd be able to follow him into his apartment and put a single shot into the into his head, it, it, you know it, it was almost like uh, this is a guy who was almost enjoying his showing off his skills and how he thinks about what he does, and you know and and so to hear that he's he's kind of. He's faded in prison. I mean, the point is, he's 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 gone past middle age. I think at this stage, he's he's getting into his old age, um, and I'm sure he he doesn't fancy the leaving the fine cuisine of of uh, Portlaoise prison as he described it in, a, in that interview he referred to, where he, he also spoke about it like it was great fun or not. You know, he was enjoying his job fixing TVs and computers. So, I mean, I, I guess he's comparing that to you know the the Russian gulags he spent time in and. Needless to say, his time he spent in some of the Baltic nation prisons as well. So that's what he's got to look forward to now to finish off his his retirement, I suppose. Now, he fought this extradition and it was before Justice Paul Burns in the High Court this week where he eventually was told he's been sent back to Lithuania where he's wanted for trial for the murder of a sort of a gangster who's nicknamed Diamond. We'll come to him and his story because in itself, it's like something off the TV. But um, basically, Justice Byrne said that, you know, Ireland had requested additional information from Lithuania. They had received it. We had no ambiguity with handing him back. Um, He has claimed during the course of these extradition proceedings, this is uh, Arrakis, that he has an alibi for the date in question, the November 2015 date of the murder of Diamond. He says he was in Spain. Um, you know, he was told basically that he'll be sent back within two weeks. His prison sentence for the conspiracy to murder Mago Gately is finished, the judge said. Um, so he's sitting in prison basically waiting on these extradition proceedings. And he seems to be allowed 
I don't think it's another appeal, but he's allowed to put something else before the courts if he wants to. He was sort of explained that by his his counsel. But they also asked him, um, and through the final question, I think he was asked under the the Irish court system was, was he afraid of flying? Which I kind of had to giggle about um, because, of course, he flew in here to kill Mago Gately, or at least that was his plan. He he flew from Alicante and landed in Dublin Airport, which is part of the whole story of of Arrakis. But yeah, when he looks that way, there's sort of that same chilling, blue, piercing eyes looking around the courtroom, trying to understand what's going on. He'd no translator there. So he obviously either has good English or he's waiting till after the case. Most of them would have a translator. Um, he sort of looks, he's still obviously doing some sort of workout in gym because he, he's kind of wide, although he looks as if he's shrunk. But maybe um, he doesn't seem as threatening or something. I don't know what that is about. Maybe it's just the, the new hairstyle makes him look less sort of uh, hitmanish or something. But nonetheless, he's, he's an incredible character to look at. He did appear before, I think, on a video link to the Lithuanian courts. But I think... Maybe to explain who he is, we should go back to the beginning, Eamon, because he has a long and a a colourful career and how he ended up here in Ireland is part of the wider sort of organised crime networks across Europe. So we need to bring him back to the 70s and to uh, Estonia. Yes, I suppose, like, I I know we've mentioned this a little bit before, but I mean, it it was this kind of wild story about this, um, you know, almost like a Bond villain type character. uh, and you know, and obviously, there's an element of legend about it. I think to some extent, but you know, he would have been he would have been a criminal in in kind of the, the Soviet-run Baltic states. Um, I think he was a very young man when they broke into a gun club, stole a couple of guns and ammunition. He was arrested. Um, I think he he escaped from from the courtroom dramatically, and then was rearrested again. And he ended up spending you know long stretches behind bars in Russian-run detention centres, which we all know from various books and, you know, dissident uh, Soviets, you know, written over the years. It was a, you know, horrific, basically, you know, slave system. Uh, and for anyone to have survived that, like his testament to their own, you know, ability to survive, whether it's rat-like cunning or or just, you know, being smart or being extremely tough. But uh, he would have come out then as as part of, uh, you know, one of these one of these Russian uh, jail gangs, you know, and, and these guys, they had, you know, they had a very, very strict hierarchy, I mean, there's once once you're in, you're in for life. You, you know, if you have a wife, she's secondary to to whatever you know the demands of the gang is. And over over the years, then would have established himself as as a kind of a, almost like a Robin Hood type figure, which rings you know certain bells among some of our Irish criminals at the minute as well. Mm. Um, and so he had a good run, let's say. Um, ended up then in Spain. You know, obviously as these guys move up the chain, they get to. They get to be in, in in the nicer end of things, um, but like he never went beyond, you know, being a hitman. Which to some extent is like a, I suppose a, you know, a, what would you say, kind of like a slightly promoted foot soldier. He's not at the bottom, but he's certainly not at the top. Even if you're at the top of your game as a hitman, you're still potentially a disposable asset. You know, no more than a Ferrari, you know, or 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 a gun or a bomb or something like that. You're you're a tool to be used. Now it seems that you know he he was part of a very loyal, uh, well-run gang. I, mean, I think there was a couple of different um, 
police operations, uh, you know, between the, the Baltic states and, and uh, the Dutch and the Spanish, English, and of course the the, the Gardaí as well. Uh, there was there was a, and I, that was one of the reasons I think why probably jumping ahead a little bit, but, but one of the reasons why he was caught in Ireland. In fact, the only reason he was caught in Ireland was because of that cooperation between the police and that, that gang run by the wheelchair bound Mister Baddy, the the um, Sergius. Beglickus, uh, you know, allegedly, uh, this is, you know, the, the Polish authorities are after him the, for years. Uh, the, the, and, and, of course, Arrakis is part of this. And again, they're all based in the south of Spain, where we know the Kinan cartel have, you know, a huge presence. So there's no doubt that there was a link there, and, you know, between the top boys. These guys all know each other. They, they hang out in the same clubs. No more than, like, the guys all now in Dubai, if you're not part of that gang, you're not really in business at all. And so Arrakis would have been a useful tool that would have been swapped around whoever needed them, whoever was available, and, you know, whoever was responsible would get their cut or, or organise it, or there would be favours done or cash handed over in return for it. Arrakis is kind of hard as nails, hard as they come. I mean, to have survived that gulag system, I mean, whatever about the, the slave labour and the stories that we've heard from these gulags that they often would have had to catch and eat rats. Now, maybe that is an exaggeration, but we've heard that out of the gulag system. Um, the cold must have been absolutely horrendous to deal with in, in parts of Russia where these gulags were were situated. But he he was out after Estonia got its independence around 1991. Big row between Russians and Estonians. He survived a number of assassination attempts, makes his way down to the heat of Spain, which I can't blame him, where he survives another assassination attempt down there. I think two people were jailed in relation to that. Um, And he chooses, and you're right, I mean, that idea of being a hitman, it's not the top, it's not the bottom, but it is probably the most high-risk occupation you can choose from an organised crime gang. Fact of the matter is, if you're caught, you're going to be jailed for life. It's not like you're caught with a gun or, you know, if you're caught actually in the process of planning or carrying out a murder. And you also have to be an incredibly cold individual to take that as your employment. And given the wages that he's been paid, even for this hit he was employed to do here in Ireland, um, you know, between 100,000 and 200,000 was the money. But how many of those do you need to do a year to keep your whole show on the road if you have a high lifestyle? Um, you know, it's, it, it takes an extraordinary individual, for sure a sociopathic individual, to become a professional hitman. Um, but there has to be a finite amount of those people out there that are hiring, surely, or am I just completely naive and innocent, that are hiring their services out to kill individuals. I mean, this gang you're talking about, the wheelchair-bound patron with his sinister little uh, hairless cat on his on his lap, although I'm actually I'm not being fair to the cat, it's him that's sinister and not the cat. But uh, he was obviously, or certainly whoever was running this, was taking a cut from any freelance assassination that was... So, you know, it wasn't as if Arrakis was going home with all that money in his pocket to to feather his, his nest. It was a very, very strange occupation to have chosen. And I mean, even during the extradition hearings, like it, it like counsel for acting for Arrakis was saying, you know, it was actually, it wasn't a six-figure sum, it was a five-figure sum, and that he actually had a large debt and that it would, this would only cover part of it. 
So uh, obviously, I mean, it's it's the lawyer's job to to put forward the best defence for their client, to put forward the best argument and everything. But it certainly stands in contrast to to, to kind of the information you know that we have you know heard previously, and it, it, it's. You know, it, it kind of it would suggest that he, he wasn't in such a you know a position of strength. But when you go back to the trial of you know for the conspiracy to kill Mago Gately, he didn't look like a guy who was under terrible pressure. You know, he looked like a guy who, as I said, you know, was was showing off how how clever he is, how good he is at his job, and you know, and <clears throat> and I mean, and only for the fact that you know he he was fully confident that no one knew who he was. And he relied on that, and it just didn't work. I mean, that he was being watched from the moment he he stepped on the bus into in, into Dublin city centre from Dublin airport, and of course it was picked up then by a known criminal uh, after spending two hours on a, on a tour of the murder sites of the north in the city. So, like, it's hard to it, 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 it's hard to fathom what goes through these people's heads. I mean, I mean, you, you can't really compare, say, to somebody who's in the army who, who's been in combat. I mean. You know, they, they may kill enemy soldiers, but it's, it's state sanctioned to, to an extent. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing their job and they never really know if anyone was hit. It's, most of the time, it's not going to be as personalized. They're not going to be reading about, you know, the people they killed for the next 20 years or 10 years. So, I mean, it, these guys have to be prepared with whatever conscience or, 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 you know, mental issues that they might have years down the line when they come to think about, you know, what, what they've done and what they've put other people through. And then there's also the thing they have to look over their shoulder for the rest of their lives because we've seen it so many times where people who've carried out hits on the orders of a, of a gang boss then become, you know, ultimately the victims of another gangland hit themselves because the boss wants to make sure there's no loose ends that are going to tie them tie them to a killing that will put them away for life. So, I mean, in, in that sense, they might be very important tools and very useful and, and they might be very good at what they do, but ultimately they're dis- Disposable. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what's going to happen to Imre Arrakis. So April 2017, when Imre Arrakis landed in Dublin, he was at the top of his game, really, top of his career. He had been chosen by the Kinahan mob to come to Ireland and to carry out what they were kind of hoping would be a trophy kill. We were 14 months into the Kinahan hutch feud. There was 11 murders, but no significant character or certainly not their top you know, would-be victims had been been shot. So they were kind of getting a bit angsty in Dubai and uh, Arrakis was hired and he flew into Dublin. He waited for his luggage to come off the carousel and he hopped on a bus. But little did he know that an undercover officer from the Garda's Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau was on the bus with him and had literally just hopped on as it, as it almost took off and he was followed from there on in. That was the end for him. But that all related to this murder two years previous in November 2015, the one which he's now been extradited for to face charges. Um, That happened in Lithuania and it was a drug-related murder. Dimantis Bogovicius, who was in a relationship with a, a, a Lithuanian or Estonian pop star called Vita Jakutien, he was shot dead as he entered this apartment she watched the hit. It was huge news there because she was famous and obviously he was a gangster. She subsequently got back with her husband, a convicted drug dealer, um, who she had left for, for Diamond. But that uh, murder sparked a cooperation between the Lithuanian and Estonian police forces. They wanted to find these killers. The Estonians began 
to sort of dig into their underworld sources and three names were, were mentioned. Arle Grabby, Hans Eric Erhart and Imre Arrakis. And they were the three names they were given from their underworld sources that had carried out this, this murder. So they began to kind of track the movements of these three guys. Uh, Grabby and Erhart were unknown to them, but they had noticed they'd been traveling around Europe in and out of France, in and out of Lithuania, in hired cars, et cetera, et cetera. But Imre was more interesting to them because, of course, the background we've described, they knew him since the 70s. He was a suspected gangland assassin and they were watching him very closely and had noticed that he had travelled to Ireland a number of times. So a meeting had been held before April 2017 with Eurojust and the Irish Gardaí, the Lithuanians and the Estonians, when the Irish Gardaí had been informed that, listen, Arrakis is in and out of Ireland. We know you have this ongoing feud, which is, uh, you know, not localised. It's coming back to Spain, where, of course, they all knew one another from. And we suspect that maybe Arrakis has been employed by somebody. So from that point of view, the Irish Gardaí were on alert, but they got the phone call that morning to say he'd boarded a flight in Alicante and they followed him into Dublin city centre where he walked around some murder sites and possibly viewed another would-be victim, uh, the home of Patsy Hutch, who's been targeted a number of times by the Kinnahan grouping. And they then, as we spoke about, arrested him in a house out in Blanchardstown. Um, Those encrypted phones were found, uh, messages and directions from overlords known as Knife and Bon uh, on their handles on the phone. And he got the six and a half years um, but it was just one of those stories that emerged in the middle of the craziness of the Kinnahan Hutchfield, the craziness of the last seven years in Irish gangland. Um, he's not the only sort of foreigner to have washed up on our shores, but he spent his time in Portleash prison. He has always denied or certainly did deny his uh, that he knew he denied that he knew who Mago Gately was, I think, during his case. And he then, of course, rumours abounded that he had subsequently tried to contact the Gardaí to give some information on who had directed him here. Uh, of course, none of that will probably ever be proven by us. Um, but it's it's really sort of a window into an international world that maybe before 2016 we weren't fully aware of. While we were out and about in Spain a bit and we knew our Irish gangs were operating there, we knew it was the melting pot of European and worldwide drug traffickers. We probably didn't really quite understand that gangs existed that hired out killers. Looking back, I mean, that kind of 2015, 2016, 2017 was probably the pinnacle or close to the the pinnacle for the Kinahan cartel. Like, you know, so much has come out since then. And we know about, like, you know, the famous wedding of, of Daniel in, in the Burj Al Arab Hotel in, in, in 2017 and all these these top names from the Italian Camorra and the Bosnian Mafia and, uh, you know, and the, the, the Dutch Moroccan gangs and, and all, all these guys like Rudo and Taghi, Raphael and Piriale. And, uh, you know, we're, we're so used to them now that we actually forget, we, we had no idea who these people were at the time. And I mean, and I've no doubt there's a couple of individuals that haven't come out in the wash yet. But I think it's it's kind of it's a point worth making 
that I think it's been made before on, on this podcast by, by other people that, you know, you know, the guys out in Dubai now, you know, are doing business. They do know each other. They hang out together. Um, and, and that's where it was in, you know, at that time. And so, I mean, like at that point, like in, in the feud, you know, there was this kind of uh, unleashing of, you know, kind of bloodlust, this vengeance from from the kind of probably originated mostly from the burn organized crime group because of, you know, the, the personal loss they had suffered. But the, they hadn't managed to kill any kind of really high profile people. I mean, the people they really wanted to get would have been Jerry Hutch and, and his, his brother Patsy and and probably Mago Gately as number three, seeing as he was seen as kind of the most capable, you know, um, the most capable of people still aligned to him. Uh, and they hadn't done it. And, uh, and if you look at what happened, I think in it was December earlier, like Noel Kieran, Duckhead Kieran was shot dead. And I, and uh, and this is a guy who was just simply killed because he was known to be friends with, with uh, Jerry Hutch. He had no involvement in crime. And it was such a soft target. I, I went, looking back now, when you look at the people who are facing charges over that, what a waste of senior resources from from the gangland point of view um i mean if declan brady i'm probably skipping ahead here a little bit like if declan brady mr nobody who was like you know a key figure in their operations here in ireland you know in terms of you know holding on to the arsenal organizing you know the the shipment of drugs and weapons and now we know then just just um yesterday i think that his child has been fixed for next year another man michael crotty is also charged with facilitating a, a criminal gang as well but you also had then um if you remember martin elmer who's serving eight years for his part in the logistical support of of michael barr's killing but also in in the kerwin in the kerwin murder as well uh, and he was described as being quite senior in in the setup so it's been pretty embarrassing like you know if you're if you're daniel kinnan mm-hmm. in the uh in the underworld gentleman's club and you can't sort things out in your own backyard, it doesn't look good. So you're kind of throwing, trying to throw money at the problem and bring in the Lionel Messi of, of the underworld hitmen. And you, you're, you get a rackets transferred on a temporary loan to your, your gang and look what happens. So I mean, it's a double embarrassment for him. And like, actually, you have a very good point about that Noel Duckhead Kerwin murder and not to take for a second from the man and you know, his family, um, a horrendous loss. And he was shot in the driveway of his house in, I think he died in the arms of his partner. His children have, um, you know, spoken out about him before. Uh, he seemed to have been a really popular man, a great family man, etc. But his murder absolutely brought down very senior figures in the group. And of course, not to forget Sean McGovern, and the Americans, you know, during the U.S. sanctions, and a murder, an arrest warrant is issued for him to face charges in relation to the murder of Noel Duckett Kerwin. He is simply on the run in Dubai. He's a wanted man. Um, and the Dubai authorities have yet to manage to find him and to send him back to Ireland uh, where he's wanted. But, um, you know, that's something else that will hopefully come in the future. When you talk about Declan Brady, Mr. Nobody, who had been for years operating as Bomber Kavanagh's um, logistic and gunman, he was actually up in court yesterday. I popped, I actually happened to have been in the court early and he was brought in for a quick hearing. And the trial is not next year. It's 2024, January 2024. Such is the levels, the amount of people before the courts. You know, it was it was a strange day because I was actually there for 
the Jerry Hutch trial. So you've got Jerry the Monk Hutch facing uh, murder charges in relation to the David Byrne murder. Uh, Declan Brady popped up beforehand when he was arraigned to this trial for January 2024. Um, just shows how busy the special criminal courts are. There's two of them running at the moment. Are they going to have to bring in a third? Have they enough judges to handle the amount of gangland suspects being brought before them. And then obviously down in the other court, in the high court, you had Imre Arrakis. So you had three significant things going on in one day alone in the courts, which were all part of the fallout of the implosion of that Kinahan gang and the reactions that both sides, both the Hutch side and the Kinahan side, made to the murders of, uh, I suppose, Gary Hutch and, and um, da- David Byrne. Um And what I wanted to talk to you about as well while we're on the matter was the story you had at the weekend because um, the next big trial, and we're not even through the monk, we haven't even got onto the really juicy bits yet of that, but we're certainly heading for Christmas and the new year with this. I mean, I think the Jerry Hutch trial is going to go into next year, but starting in January, of course, is the trial for the the murder of uh, Cian Mulready Woods. And you had a story this weekend where his father was brought up in in a cab case. Yeah, well, it's it's one of these affidavits, again, we've spoken about this before, where the the Criminal Assets Bureau like to prove that, you know, an individual is part of a criminal gang or whatever, and that there's a pattern of criminality. And this is in relation to Brendan and uh, Owen Maguire, two brothers. uh, They're part of what was termed the Price Maguire Organised Crime Group. And as if to show... Uh, if, if it's needed to highlight it, that one way for a gang to, to attract too much attention is to get involved in a feud, then, well, the Kinnons have shown that, but the, the Maguires have, you know, at their own level, have done exactly the same thing. Uh, and it was part of this. I know, look, it was a very it was a very stark and basic kind of five or six lines. Um, it just, it was listing through all the different um, tit-for-tat uh, arson attacks and attempted arson attacks, shootings, um, you know, uh, assaults, some some quite serious assaults, all in the town of Drogheda. You know, all, all during a, a pretty you know tight time scale from sort sort of kind of um, twenty eighteen until uh, until twenty twenty over kind of two and a bit years. Um, and in it was that uh, you know that Barry Woods uh, you know complained to the Gardaí I think in August twenty nineteen that uh, his car had been petrol bombed, and it also mentioned then that uh, Barry Woods was a member of the the, the Price. Um, Maguire organised crime group and is the father of of, of Keane Mulready Woods. So it was kind of the first time I think that this has been kind of said in a forum that you know in a way that I think I'd, I had heard it anyway. Um, now there was no there was no question of there was no you know further detail about whether he was a junior or senior member or what kind of role he played or you know in, in any of that regard. But interestingly enough. Like his tragic son, like who died in such horrific circumstances that we now know, that he he was he was um, it was mentioned that he was known to the Gardaí for criminality. He was only seventeen, but it makes no mention of him being a, a member of a gang at all. Mm. So it's it just it adds to the kind of I suppose the the tragedy behind it in a sense that you know how much of this was all avoidable. And you look back like the Maguire Cornelius Price conglomeration or groups like. Who's left there? It's well, look. The, the probably the safest way to put it is that the feud hasn't died down, but most of the most of the main players are either abroad, they're facing charges, they're in prison, or they're dead or incapacitated. Like we know that uh, Cornelius Price uh, is 
seriously ill in the UK for, for months now. And uh, he, he didn't appear at his trial. He's facing a, a tiger kidnapping charge in the UK. And obviously he didn't appear at that. That was, I think, due to start yesterday. Um, but there are other individuals, including uh, including a, a man from Drada, who are, I think, apparently the trial is going to go ahead this week. A, a jury was sworn yesterday. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but But like in terms of like... You know, Brendan Maguire is based in the UK. Owen is uh, wheelchair-bound, paralysed in the chest down, still apparently living in Drogheda. Uh, but then on the other side of it, you know, we can't really name some of the leading individuals, but they're, you know, partly because at the moment they are facing criminal charges. They're not in this jurisdiction. So, it, you know, the, and obviously the likes of Robbie Lawler kind of was a loose cannon thrown into all of this. He had, a, a, I think it was a relation that happened to be on, on the kind of the anti uh, Price Maguire faction, and like he's he's believed to have been like he was again. It was stated in in the cab affidavit that that we that we saw recently that he was the man who apparently shot um, Owen Maguire in in 2018. That pretty much was the basis, you know, was the spark for the feud. Now it should be noted that the Maguire the Maguire Price gang were actually already involved in an lethal feud. They'd been uh, fighting with. Um, Members of another kind of uh, Balbriggan-based group, uh, which it resulted in the, in the murder of Benny Whitehouse. So that they're, you know, pretty much been blamed for being behind that. And of course, then there was the murder of Willie Mon and his girlfriend Anna Varsalan. Uh, and again, that's been you know put on the the doorstep of of the Price Maguire gang. They had been, I think, living in in Price's uh, uh, kind of compound, is the best way to describe it. They've been there in a mobile home, but I think there was a little bit of worry that he wanted to move out and start a new life and that he just basically knew too much. And the, the theory is that he was killed and Anna was killed because she happened to be there and their bodies have never been discovered. But they are, I think the guards are, the guards are satisfied that they have been murdered and, and it was elements of the Price Maguire gang who were behind it. Real savagery to that gang and their rivals indeed up in that area. And Drogheda was... The focus of international media attention when the feud was in full force and obviously when Keen Mulready Woods was murdered and dismembered and his body parts left um, throughout Dublin. But uh, why are Cab here at the table? Because I always thought or sort of suspected that they didn't really ever have much. They were involved in massive criminality. They were, these gangs were involved in drug dealing in quite a lucrative turf, but they never seem to accumulate much wealth. What are the cab looking for? Well, well, in this case, it was I think literally a month after Omar Gwai was shot. They they searched the the place he was living at the time, and they found two hundred and seventy thousand euro hidden under roof tiles. Uh, there were there were other raids. It was it was even before he was shot. They had they had actually been targeted as well. I mean, even the van he was driving has been seized as as uh, as part of the cab case. And I think it, it amounts to about three hundred four thousand in cash in total. And then there's some properties and a, and a couple of vehicles, some jewelry as well, like a Rolex watch, stuff like that. So I mean, it adds up. I mean, they're not they're not Kinahan level, but like when you consider the amount of of terror that they caused in Drogheda and surrounding areas and the amount of trouble. I, I mean, trouble isn't, is, is, is understating it, but, they, you know, it's, it's just horrific what they put people through. And it, it's only right that I think the likes of the Criminal Assets Bureau are employed to strip them of whatever they've got, even if it's only 300,000, you know, compared to, you know, the hundreds of millions that are ultimately being earned by the guys at, uh, and women at the, at the top end. 
So, I, I mean, there's even smaller guys, you know, we've done stories in the past that, you know, it would have gone after them for whatever it is, like a 58,000 euro house that they managed to trick a neighbor out of. I think, personally, I think that's hugely important to people in those communities that they, these bullies who, you know, they terrorize and manipulate vulnerable people and, 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 and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. Even, you know, and you could argue, okay, it might not be the best use of resources when you look at the bit of bigger picture. But I, th- I think so far it, they're getting the balance right. I'd like to think they're getting the balance right. And I think some of these small-time guys, while you know, they're not going to trouble, trouble Europol or Interpol or the FBI or anything like that. I mean, it sends out a real message about, about you know, taking law and order seriously and that, you know, you're not going to get away with it in, in, a, in a troubled state no more than you would if you happen to be living in a nice leafy suburb of South County, Dublin or wherever, you know, where people feel that, you know, some communities are under-policed and others are, you know, get the full benefit of, of their, their tax dollars. So I think it's important, like, to go after them. For sure. And no criminal likes to lose their wealth that because they believe they worked so hard to accumulate it. So uh, it's always nice to see them being stripped of that. So, um just finally want to say, anybody listening, there I did do a long read on the life and crimes of Imre Arrakis during the summer. So we're going to repost it after this episode as well so you don't have to go rooting for it. Anybody who wants to uh, hear the full story of that uh, international hitman for hire. So for now, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.